Genesis chapter 47. We will be reading verses 1 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Please give it your full attention. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they have, have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. He took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please, let your servants live in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And you know any capable men among them, then put them in charge of my livestock. And then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, the years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses. As Pharaoh had ordered, Joseph provided his father and his brothers Lost my place, sorry. Ah, and all their father's household with food according to their little ones. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Uh, gracious God and most holy Father, we come to you this morning asking for your assistance and asking for your grace as we come to your holy word. Now we pray that you would give listening to our ears and understanding to our minds, Lord. We pray that you would give a deep and sincere passion for you in our hearts. Lord, help us in our hands and in our feet to obey all that you have commanded. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. Be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, saints, be seated. I greet you once again in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and once again welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our studies through uh, the book of Genesis. And this morning, as we come to the uh, 47th chapter of the book of Genesis, we come to a chapter that is 
sadly, often overlooked and skimmed and skipped over when read or preached. But I do believe that there is much to our spiritual benefit here this morning. And with God's help, we shall discover and hopefully unearth some of those wonderful benefits and blessings that are ours in God's word. The last time that we were in the book of Genesis, we considered the moving reunion between Joseph and his father Jacob, or Israel. Uh, The son, whom was believed to be dead, was alive. And Israel said, as he was full of joy, in verse 30, chapter 46, Now let me die, since I have seen your face, that you are still alive. A truly moving reunion. But Israel, Israel would not be be buried on that day. He would not go down to his fathers on that day. Israel would live 17 more years. And there's much to be said about the 17 years that the Lord gives Israel. And we'll save that for next week. The family of Israel, the people that will soon be called the children of Israel. They have journeyed out of the promised land and into the land of Goshen. It was a land that was not far from the promised land. They were in the land of Egypt, but they were still remaining on the the borders of this new land. They didn't go all the way into the land of Egypt, but they were taken to the outer rims, if you will, of the nation of Egypt. As they were preparing to settle, Joseph goes to Pharaoh. He he makes his report of all that has taken place. And this is where we pick up our narrative in verse 1. Then Joseph, verse 1, went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and my brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan. And behold, they are in the land of Goshen. It appears that the family of Israel, the Hebrews, that they're waiting in Goshen. They're waiting for word back from Joseph while their representatives travel with Joseph to the palace of the king of Egypt. For Joseph will now present five of his brothers and his father to stand and be to be examined by the king of Egypt. And dear saints, this was truly an examination. It was a test. The brothers have passed all of Joseph's examinations. They have shown that they are truly repentant. They have been transformed. And now they will stand and be examined by the ruler of the pagan world, the king of Egypt. They will stand before the ruler of the most powerful nation in all of the world at that time. And they will give testimony 
to their identities and their purposes in this new land. Israel will stand before the king as well. He too will give testimony, if you will, as to who he is and what he is when he stands before the king. So, with that kind of background laid this morning, we, with God's help, shall consider just two thoughts from these verses this morning concerning our witness before the world. Our witness before the world. Number one, the testimony of the sons of Israel. This is verses two through six. While the family of Israel waits in Goshen, to hear back from Joseph as to whether or not Pharaoh will keep his word and allow them to stay in the land, to wait out the famine. Five sons of Israel were chosen. Whether they were chosen by Joseph or whether they were chosen by Jacob is not known, but they were chosen. And they will be representing the entire family. You remember that there were 70 who have traveled down to Egypt, and now five, five men will stand before the king of Egypt and give testimony. We remember that Joseph informed his brothers in chapter 46 and verse 43, when Pharaoh calls you, when you stand before Pharaoh and he says to you, what is your occupation? You shall say, Your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now. Both we and our fathers, five were chosen. Again, we're not told who was chosen. Most likely, the oldest was chosen. And most likely, the youngest was chosen. Because Judah has established himself as being the leader of his brothers, Judah would have also probably most likely been among that five that were chosen. Who the other two were is a mystery. But here are these five men. And if you can imagine, uh, these five men who are distinctly shepherds. Uh, You can tell by all of their outward appearances, they, they are shepherds. Uh, They are the despised of Egypt. They're distinct by their language. Oh, these are shepherds. Uh, They are distinct by their dress that as soon as you see them, you know these, uh, these are shepherds. You could tell by their staffs, by their beards, and quite possibly even by their smell. These men are all together different. They, they would have stand out, uh, stood out as being outside of their home in this high society of Egypt. And there they are. And if you can picture it in your mind's eye, they are in the great palace of the king, the most powerful king of that time. The palace would have been A sight to behold. Its halls and vast columns would have appeared immense and possibly never-ending. Egyptians were known for their use of gold, their lavish use of gold. 
and gold would have adorned the palace of the king. It would have seen as if there was an endless amount of glittering gold in the palace of the king. Servants would have been standing nearby, ready to meet any request of the king. Advisors would have been ready to assist the king if he needed any advice. And armed guards would have been ready to defend the king if these or any others would lift a hand of violence toward the king. Can you imagine the scene? The very atmosphere uh, was to design or was designed to evoke a message of absolute power and authority. Uh, The very presence of all that they were seeing was designed to evoke power and to intimidate anyone who walked in. It was enough visually to make a strong man feel weak and frail. And here stood these five sons of Israel coming to be examined by the one who rules all of the splendor that they saw and that surrounded them. They're standing before the one who owns it all. Or so it would seem. The king speaks. And he says exactly what Joseph says that he would say. What is your occupation? Uh, In the midst of this great palace, one might forget his own name, let alone forget his occupation. And the, the question from the king is one of identity. It's this, who are you? What are you? What a profound question. I wonder, saints, if you've ever looked at yourself in the mirror and asked the same question. Who are you? What are you? Do you notice that we don't see that there are any pleasantries as the brothers of Joseph enter? There is no pomp and circumstance. Uh, There is no one leading them to the, the throne of the king and There is no celebration. There is simply them standing before the king. And he wants to know one question. And I've I've split it into two. Who are you and what are you? He's gotten straight to the point. And these men, these shepherds, these sons of Israel, sons of the promise, They respond in the exact way that they have been instructed to respond. They said in verse 3, let's look at it. Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. They say what what they were supposed to say, but I, I hope that you are able to see something very important here. They are shepherds. They've come from a long line of shepherds. Their fathers were shepherds. Isaac was a shepherd. Abraham was a shepherd. And they fall into that great line of other shepherds. Enoch, 
Lamech, Noah, Seth, Abel. You see, they are they are identifying themselves with a particular line of people. They are identifying themselves as a as a particular kind of people. We are wanderers. We are sojourners. We are shepherds walking in the footsteps of shepherds who have come before us. They, like their fathers, have been guiding sheep. They have been leading sheep to greener pastures. And I hope that you are able to see the spiritual significance of this. It's not just a physical occupation they have. While it is, they are leading a people to green pastures. And they will not stop until they've arrived at the land that God has promised to give them, the land of rest. I'm not sure, and we are not sure if Jacob, who was there, was able to hear the testimony of his sons. But as they say, we are, we are shepherds like our father and like his father's father and his father's father. I'm sure that the, the smile of Jacob began to widen because the brothers didn't stop talking. You know, those who you bring to certain places and you say to them, don't say nothing. When we go here, I want you to keep your mouth closed. But what if they ask me, let me answer for you. Don't say nothing. And Joseph standing next to the king, presumably seeing his five brothers whom he knows well, answer the first question correctly. And yet they continue to speak and you can almost feel the heartbeat of Joseph beginning to to pitter-patter out of his chest. Don't talk. Please don't say no more. Please. But what they said was altogether wonderful. What they said was altogether right and true. They said in verse 4, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please, let your servants live in the land, the land of Goshen. Do you see what they've done? Not only have they given testimony to the fact that they are shepherds, But they have also said where they are going and the place that they are going is not Egypt. They are sojourners, they have said. They are Hebrews after all. And at first glance, this point may not strike a chord in our souls until we realize this. They have already been warned by Joseph that shepherds are loathsome in Egypt. Despised in Egypt. Looked down upon as the refuse of Egypt. And here Joseph says to them, say this is who you are. But that was who they were already. 
Joseph was not telling them a lie or, or making up for them a lie. He was not saying, tell him that you are someone or something that you're not. This is who you are. You are shepherds. And let me say to you, shepherds are loathed in Egypt. And here comes the sons of Israel. Viewed by the high society of Egypt as being peasants. They would be viewed as being low-brow uncultured, uneducated, disconnected from what was in vogue in society. And yet, and yet with this knowledge that they would be viewed as such a despised people, they boldly make their confession. This is who we are. We are shepherds. And we have come Not to settle in Egypt, but to sojourn. Saints, they did not shrink back. Remember, and and what I have described as what the palace may have looked like, probably paled in comparison to what the, the palace actually looked like. The knowledge of what and who and how they would be viewed in that society did not for one second cause these men to cower in fear. They did not seek acceptance into Egypt's system of of thinking and into its world. They were not coming into the land of Egypt in order to make this foreign land their permanent residence. Not in the least. They're passing through. Not intending to settle. They are like the Apostle Paul after them. Who when he stood before King Agrippa in Acts 26, Paul in chains, asked to make an offense, who are you? What are you? And the Apostle did not shrink back. The Apostle who asked the churches, pray that the Lord would give me boldness stands before King Agrippa and did not shrug his shoulders and go, I don't know. I don't know who I am. Uh, He did not stutter to find words as to who he was. He stood before the king, the king of his day, and gives testimony to his own transformation, gives testimony that he has seen this one who has been crucified, that he has seen him alive and well. He makes the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ known. And not only that, but then he calls King Agrippa to repent of sins, to place his faith in Christ. He says, you believe in the, in the prophets, don't you? I know you do. Go to Acts 26. It's exactly what he says. You believe in the prophets, don't you, King Agrippa? I know you do. King Agrippa's response to him was this. Paul Do you think that in such a short time that you can persuade me to become a Christian? You've only just gotten here. You think you're going to convince me? And the apostles' response should be all of our response. Whether we have one minute to speak to someone or one year to speak to someone, whether short time or long time, he says, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today, that includes you, 
may become what I am, except for these chains. Who are you? I pray that you would be what I am. One who has bowed his knee, not to Agrippa and not to Pharaoh, but to the only king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear ones, we have been called to be witnesses, witnesses in this world to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus gives us a great commission, uh, not an average commission, not a simple commission. It is a great commission. Go into the world. Make Christ known. Baptize. Teach all that Christ has taught. We've been called not to assimilate in this world. Not to become like the world that surrounds us. We are called to be a distinct people. They they should see you and know you. And hopefully not. But there should be, yes, There should be an aroma about you, an an aroma of life, that when you are in the presence of an unbeliever, they should say about you, there is something I smell about you. It's life emanating from you. And you can say, by the grace and the mercy of God, and with all boldness I pray, it's the rose of Sharon that you smell. It is the lily of the valleys that you smell. It is Christ and Christ alone. We are called to be a distinct people. Peter said that you are a chosen, a chosen race. Anytime someone says to you, my dear friend Louis, one of the last conversations that we had was this. There's someone that I'm doing a job for right now. And he's saying there's no such thing as God choosing anyone. I told him, go to Peter. Read. Peter, you are a chosen race. The person you're speaking to does not know God's word. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. A people chosen by God that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's who you are. That's what you are. I wonder if you're able to sense, it may seem simple, that by the grace of God, these men are given an understanding to their new identity in God. And they are given courage not to shrink back. Standing before the most powerful king, Presence of all the pomp and pride of the palace. And they do not succumb to the temptation of assimilating to the world that surrounded them, the world that was encroaching in upon them. Who are you? What are you? There are conversations today, aren't there, that you would all together love to avoid. Because who you are and what you are is not politically correct today. I listened to old debates from the 1980s. Reagan and others. The way they talk today or then would 
would no longer be accepted today on either side. What the left was yesterday is not what the left is today. And what the right has become is not what the right was. Don't make your affiliations, saints, to a right or to a left. Make your affiliations to God. Say what God says. doesn't matter if the right agrees with you or with the left agrees with you. God agrees with you. Say what God has said. Here is what God's word says. Stand bold. Don't shrink back. Don't shrug your shoulders. Don't not have an opinion. Be ready at all times to give an offense for the hope that lies within you. Be bold. Do not shrink back. Say what God has said. For when you say what God says, you don't speak on your own authority. You speak on God's authority. Those who have their opinions of left or right, they speak on their own authorities. They, they remind me of those who, in the book of Judges and in the book of Genesis, did what was right in their own eyes. You saw. You can read what happens when man does what he thinks is right in his own eyes. Oh, there is utter chaos. There is an impending destruction upon that kind of people. In the presence and lure of Egypt, they do not lose their appetite for the promises of God. They hold fast to them. In the presence of the glitter of Egypt, their affection for God is not dispelled. They know, they know the answer to the question that they asked long ago. What is this that God has done? They now know the answer. He has ordered my steps. He's used every action for his glory. And now I am not ashamed to call God my God. And we, his people, they were transformed. Altogether transformed people. Standing in Egypt, acknowledging, but this is not my home. After all the previous chapters in their family's history of sin and scandal and violence and selfishness, we see these men standing bold and making a positive testimony toward God and their transformation in Him. This is what the grace of God does for anyone who places their faith in Christ. Paul says, you will not be ashamed. Placing your faith in Christ, you will not be ashamed. We will never be put to shame. Pastor Isaiah taught this past Lord's Day evening, what if Christ had not been raised? We are the most pitied of all creatures. We are the most pitied of all creatures if Christ has not been raised. But dear ones, Christ has been raised. Christ has risen from the grave. Christ is the only king sitting on his throne. So when you testify before him, there is no shame. The world, the world may look at you and you may be despised as these shepherds were despised. You may be loathsome to the world. With your stance in Christ. 
Oh, but I'm sure just like old Jacob was standing off to the side, receiving much joy from his son's testimony, our Father in heaven is glorified when we stand and testify to the righteousness and the truthfulness of what he has said. This is what the God of Jacob does. He, he renews lives. He transforms minds. We who have placed our faith in Christ, we are new creations. We have been given hearts, new hearts. For the Holy Spirit has taken the heart of stone and given to us a heart of flesh. We have been given new minds. For our minds are no longer darkened to the truth of Christ. But we now have the mind of Christ. We've been given new affections. But we have been given the Holy Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh, but so that we will be clothed in Christ and make no provisions for the flesh. And we also have new hopes, don't we? And our hope in Christ is sure. Every promise in Christ is yes and amen. Dear saints, we must not shrink back when we are asked at our new job. When we are asked, when introduced to new friends. Young ones, those who have placed their faith in Christ, you must not be ashamed or afraid. When you go into your schools, when you gather, probably soon. And when the question is asked to you, who are you? What will you say? I pray that your testimony will be, I'm a child of a living God. My faith is in Christ alone. And my citizenship is in heaven. You would blow somebody away if you said that to them, right? Who are you? And rather than saying, I'm Nazareth, you say all the things that I've just said. Your citizenship, dear saints, is not first and foremost in America. You are not first and foremost an American. Or an African or a Mexican or whatever. Your identity is first in Christ. Your citizenship is not here on this earth. It's in heaven. And Christ has promised that he will return and take us to that eternal land. Therefore, we must not be a people. If this is who we are, if this is what we are, if that is where we are going as sojourners, then we must not pursue powers here, pleasures here, thinking that they will give us our highest good. That the pleasures and inheritances of this world can offer to us our greatest and highest good, our greatest and highest pleasures. This is... Maybe something that I 
have wrestled to think about, but it, it, it interested me just in terms of this sermon. There was a, a sports ana- uh, analyst who recently was talking about the greatness of LeBron James. And yet, how the greatness of LeBron James pales in comparison to the greatness of Michael Jordan. And this analyst said, LeBron James will not stop until he is universally recognized as the greatest of all time. And I said to myself as I was listening to this, what an empty pursuit. All of the efforts, all of the time spent, the man spends a million dollars on his body alone. What a vain pursuit. It will deteriorate. No matter how much you spend, it will break down. The time, the effort, the energy, the the Lord's days after Lord's days that that man and all like him have missed will in the end result into empty, nothingness, inheritances. Now I love MBA just as the next man. They are vain pursuits if you're, I will not stop until I. These are not his words. They're the words of of an analysis or an analyst about him. This is not dump on LeBron James. This is dump on all of us who pursue earthly inheritances thinking that they will last. They will not. There are some who have not yet learned that vital lesson. The present world is all that they think about. Their hopes, their plans, their dreams are all centered on this world that is passing away. I listened to, let's just keep with the theme of an NBA. I listened to an interview with Michael Jordan who said, when asked about being the greatest, it's unfair and it's worthless to even talk about it. I didn't play against Bill Russell. Bill Russell didn't play against me. They didn't have MVPs during his time. There are great players. It's worthless to even talk about. What a feeble way to live. What a fragile way to live. Why? In terms of this story. Because if these men were only seeking to impress the king that stood before him, the first chapter of the book of Exodus says this, Then there arose a king who had no concern for Joseph. There arose a king who could care less about Joseph. The grace and the, the gifts that these men and the children of Israel were receiving were because of Joseph. But there would arise a king who didn't care a thing about Joseph. And Joseph stood before a king that wanted to care for his family. But there would rise a king that would want to oppress his family. Do you see the fool's errand in trying to please men and trying to be in step with the world? It's worthless. It is vain.
all of the things that they had will evaporate. Let me say to you, our names will be forgotten one day. The only place where they will not be forgotten is in the Lamb's book of life. Who are you? What are you? Is your name there? A dear sister asked me once, how is it that the names written in the Lamb's book of life can never be blotted out? I said to your dear sister, it's because they are written in blood. And as a carpet cleaner, I know how hard it is to get blood out. The pleasures of men will vanish. And all that remains is what God says. The one who is poor in spirit, he is the son of God. Who knows he is empty without God. The one who is satisfied only in God is fed and hung and, and given a drink by the righteousness of God. They see God for they are pure in heart. These men had no concern over any insult that would come their way because of their identity. They did not fear persecution. They rejoiced because they knew their reward in heaven was great in Christ. And so they, and if you can imagine this, they joined that long line of saints who have gone before them. Think about that. Who did God use to bring you to faith in him? Who did you first hear the gospel from? Do you see them? Can you think of them? Who was it the one? Who was the one that God used to bring that one who brought you to God? Do you, do you know? Who, who was the one that brought that one to Do you see that long line? Of shepherds, of those who have been sojourning, those who are just passing through. Do you see them? You are in that long line. And there is no shame in being in that line. We are headed toward the celestial city. They live like aliens, do you? They move from place to place, from tent to tent. They were looking onward, upward, whose city was built by God, whose foundations and, and whose architect and builder is God. What city are you looking forward to? Well, what city are you longing for? San Francisco, my brother and I were just talking about it, where we would live. L.A., are you hoping that it opens up soon and you can go back to your city New York, my son desires to go. What city are you longing for? Well, these men, they long for a city whose builder and architect is God. Pharaoh grants them, you may stay in Goshen. And even Goshen is a special place. Why? Because Goshen is a, is a land with invisible borders. No one in Egypt wants to go to Goshen. While it is a plentiful land, a rich land, shepherds live there, and shepherds are loathsome to us. 
Do you see how God even provides a land with invisible walls for his people to be protected and safe and distinct from the land of pagan Egypt? What a blessing. Pharaoh didn't give them that land. God did. They, they were right on the, the side of the Nile River. They were on, on the borders of the land. Last week we talked about they were exiting one land and entering another. But do you know that the land of Goshen was right near the exit door? So that when the time came for God to bring His people out of Egypt, they wouldn't have to travel across the country to get out. They would be right near the exit doors. The only thing stopping them would eventually be a sea that God intentionally brought them towards to show His great power. 400 years later, they would be in position to go home. The God of Jacob has been with His people. And the God of Jacob is with you. How do I know this? Because... He has put spiritual walls around you now. It's called the church. He has called you into her, into his church, to be a part of his people, to come out of the world, not to assimilate, to unite yourself to Christ and his church. And the way in is Christ. Christ is the door. And Christ is our great shepherd. He leads us to Greener pastures. And away from the presence and influence of Egypt. You are in the world, but you are not of the world. This text this morning in this long point, I know. It is rousing you. To testify to your new identity in Christ. To call people toward him as well. To stay confined within the walls of the church that Christ has built for you. Be bold when you testify. Secondly, and maybe half shorter, Jacob's blessing. This is verses 7 through 12. The sons of Israel have been faithful in their testimony to God. They have not shrunk back. And they've been dismissed, as it were. And now it's time for their father. Their father, Israel, to stand before the king. Pharaoh, the man who was considered to be God, a a reincarnation of God, standing in the presence of Israel, the man who grappled with God, and who the scriptures say prevailed With God. God has been with this worm, Jacob. God has chosen Jacob even before he wrestled with Esau in his mother's womb. And now here he is standing before the most powerful man on all of the earth. And if you can imagine what we have described as being the palace and now here comes Israel. This man who is 130 years old. A man who is apparently displaced. A man who who appears to be a refugee. 
A man who appears to need the generosity and protection and favor of Pharaoh. But appearances are deceiving, aren't they? It would appear as though Israel needs Pharaoh's blessing. But we will find out that it is actually Pharaoh who needs Israel's blessing. Israel was no beggar. He did not come to prostrate himself on the ground in uh, honor and adoration of Pharaoh. He did not even come asking for mercy. Israel, presumably helped by his son, Joseph, comes into the throne room of, of Pharaoh. And while on the outside he may have appeared to be weak and fragile, Standing before the king was a man strong and full of faith in Almighty God. This is so important for you, saints. While we are shedding this earthly skin, while we are rapidly becoming weaker in our bodies, your faith should become stronger. As, as you are deteriorating, Losing the strength that you once had. We, my brother and I did a job for a man the other day who used to watch the Brooklyn Dodgers play when they were in Brooklyn. I said to my brother, that was 200 years ago. <laughs> or something like that. He saw Jackie Robinson. He saw the, 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 uh, the, the heyday of the, of the Dodgers franchise. I said to my brother, how old was that man? My brother said, old? And while we are all heading toward that, that place where people will ask us, as we often do when we encounter older people, how old are you? While our bodies waste away, our faith should increase. Why? Because we're getting closer to home. Don't you love that? When you're driving a place and, and you see Bakersfield. 70 miles. And you can feel the anticipation of being home. Bakersfield, 40 miles. 20 miles. And then you see the sign and you can already feel the, the warmth of your bed. The, the smell of your own home. The embrace of your family. As you progress, your faith should increase because you're getting closer to home. And before Pharaoh could speak a word, the Bible says in verse 7, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. There's no words even uttered from Pharaoh's mouth. Before Jacob lifts his hands as the prophet of God, as the man of God, and proclaims a blessing on Pharaoh and all of his nations. Brothers and sisters, this would have been altogether shocking to those who witnessed this act of Israel. No one speaks to the king unless they are allowed to speak. Uh, no one lifts a hand towards Pharaoh without it being cut off. 
There must have been a stunned silence in the royal throne room. You might imagine the the mouths of the servants and advisors falling to the ground in shock. What is he doing? A pin could be heard, I'm sure. What is he doing? Why is he doing this? And contrary to what some commentators say, I don't believe this was a, a casual greeting. I don't believe that there was simp- this was simply a pleasantry on the part of Israel. Israel seems to understand something by faith that is far more impressive and far more important than all of the, the earthly pomp and circumstance of the palace of Egypt. He's not come to beg. He's not come to make a good impression. He is there on assignment. It may appear that Joseph has brought him into the room. No, God has brought him into this room. God has brought him into this room so that God would use him to bless Pharaoh. How? God has made a promise, hasn't he? I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you. The Pharaoh has been good to the children of Israel. Therefore, what he will receive is a blessing from Israel. Not from Israel. From God. God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. This man, Pharaoh, is unaware of the position that this man who stands, this old and weak and fragile man, he is aware of his power in God. This man stands before Joseph and his children thinking that he has absolute power only to come and find out that the God that they serve, the God that you serve, is the one who has and possesses all power. Pharaoh may have been the most powerful for a moment, but he's not blessed until he is given a blessing by God. God sends Israel to pronounce favor upon the house of Pharaoh. This was not a pronouncing, let's be clear, of spiritual blessing. This was not a pronouncement of salvation to Pharaoh. It was a pronouncement of earthly blessing to Pharaoh and upon his house and upon his nation. And will you notice that Jacob does not, Israel does not bless Pharaoh once, but twice. He's coming in blessing Pharaoh. They have a dialogue. And when the dialogue is over, he blesses him again. Saints, the blessing of God will come quickly to the house of Pharaoh and to the nation of Egypt. How so? The Egyptians will exceed in their prosperity to a whole nother level. The devastation, let me explain. As you progress in the 47th chapter, the devastation 
of the famine increases. It is intensifying and it causes the people, the residents of Egypt, to come to Joseph. And they are asking for more food. They've been given money, but they don't have any more money. And so the only way that they can acquire more food is by selling all their cattle. Joseph takes their cattle and they now become property of Egypt. The food runs out. The people who have sold all of their cattle come back to Joseph and say, we're out of food again. You have all of our cattle. The only thing that we can offer now is ourselves. The people of Egypt sell themselves into slavery in order to survive. Now, we must not think of slavery in terms of uh, North American uh, stealing human beings from Africa kind of slave trade. It's not that kind of slave trade at all. They are indebted to Egypt. They must therefore work for them and they will be provided for. When you look through the annals of time and when you observe the images portrayed of masses in Egypt, you've seen them, masses working on the pyramids, uh, masses working on building the Sphinx. Those great wonders of the world will, were built on the backs of these slaves who gave themselves to Egypt to work. The nation, in its appearance, in its grandeur, in its wonder, is growing, and it is because they blessed Israel and God blessed them. The nation of, it is still a nation that people travel to today to observe. It's still a nation that people go to today and stand in awe of. Can you imagine what it had looked like some three or four thousand years ago? And it was because the blessing of God was given to them through their servant Israel. The nation of Israel was blessed as a result. Their nation was blessed by God, and the nation of Egypt was blessed by God, allowed to thrive and to prosper. The most obvious question in closing would be this. Why? Why would God allow a pagan nation to grow and to prosper? You and I must remember that nothing in all of creation is done by God, without purpose, and without it ultimately bringing glory to God. You remember in Genesis 15, when God said to Abraham, Know for certainty that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will judge the nation whom they serve. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Dear saints, there was a time coming when the descendants of Israel were, were no longer welcome in Egypt. They grew from 70 to 2 million. And there arose a king who had no regard for Joseph. 
no regard for the children of Israel. And rather than bless, he oppressed them. And the curse of God would come down upon that nation. These 400 years, as they are, maybe four or 500 years, as they are there and acquiring prosperity and wealth and goods, they are storing up wealth for the righteous. In their oppression, Israel will cry out to God and God will hear their cries. He will send them a deliverer. He will inflict upon the nation of Egypt ten curses or ten plagues until ultimately they would exit the land. And do you know, during that exodus, they are carrying with them riches and wealth. And Pharaoh even sends them with wealth. Go. Where did they get all of that from? From God. God was blessing the wicked so that he could ultimately give it to the righteous. Dear ones, you are blessed. Now, don't think that Publisher's Clearinghouse is going to show up at your door tomorrow. That's not the blessing. No, the blessing that you have is while the world may curse you, you have immeasurable, innumerable riches that are yours in Christ Jesus. Oh, you are wealthy. You are, are wealthy beyond measure. Your bank account doesn't say so, but God's word says so. Uh, your uh, debit card doesn't say so, but your soul says so. It is well with your soul. God is blessing this pagan nation so that it may be known that it is God who raises up nations and it is God who brings them down. God was raising up this nation, this powerful nation, so that it could one day realize as it is brought to its knees that there is only one who rules all nations there was only one supreme power, one king, one monarch who was sovereign over all. That is the Lord God Almighty. It will be a great victory for the Lord one day. Egypt will acquire wealth. They will acquire power. They will acquire control over all of the people. But God will ultimately display that he owns it all. He controls it all. God is in control. Yes. Yes. And it's the same for the church today, saints. Uh, many of us have gone, uh, grown up with the phrase, uh, hearing it, especially in politics, uh, we need to bless Israel. Because those who bless Israel will be blessed. Amen. We need to bless Israel. The question is, who is Israel? Paul says, for we are Israel. The church, the people of God, we are Israel. Now, if you want to take it to uh, defend a nation or be nice to a Jew because of their ancestry, then that's your own decision. But you should love all of your neighbors just as you love yourself. There is only one holy nation. 
And it's not located in the Middle East. It's located all around the world. And that nation is right now gathering. And we are worshiping our king, our only king, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Israel that will be blessed, uh, the Israel that, that, that is blessed, the Israel that, that we must bless is the church. Let me say to you that those who are opposing the church, this holy nation, those who are opposing this church, this royal priesthood, those who are opposing the church, this chosen race, they will be cursed by God. Those who look at the church and its gatherings, especially in times like now, those who have been trying to oppress the church, you can't meet, you can't gather, you can't sing a song, you can't take the Lord's Supper. This nation will suffer the consequences of persecuting the church. Believe God's word. Those who bless Israel will be blessed. Those who curse Israel will be cursed. America is not a Christian nation. It is a nation filled with Christians. And we must stand and testify that we are the people of God. We must not shrink back. We must not cower in fear. We must not uh, be reluctant to say those things that God has said. Because God has promised that he will defend and build this church at all cost. And if it has cost him his life, rest assured he will protect his church. The Lord is preparing a nation, building his nation. And in doing so, showing the world that our God is God. Do you notice the response of Pharaoh? It's simply this. After Jacob blesses him, how old are you? What a question. Why this question? And the only answer would be that Pharaoh was impressed by Israel. He's seeing that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Just as Joseph has impressed him and now his son or his father stands before him and he sees, now I see where it comes from. And it's not from Israel. It's from God. How old are you? You seem so wise. I've never met a man like you. And his response is, few And hard have been my days. But they haven't been as hard as my father's days. And they haven't been as long as my father's days. I said a few weeks ago that that Jacob's life was hard, yes. But this statement was not a statement of pessimism or depression or or, or, uh, of being down, if you will. He said, my days have been few. Some of us are not even 70 years old here. And we feel like we have lived a long, long time. Some of us are in our 30s and we feel like we've lived two lifetimes. And Jacob said, it's been short. It's been 
light and momentary afflictions. But they cannot compare to surpassing glory that is laid up for me in heaven. It's actually a statement of faith. And my fathers, Isaac and Jacob, oh, you should have seen them. They were men of faith. They lived longer than I did. They went through more and they persevered. I love meeting old people like that. You don't know the half of it. My dad, my granddad, oh, they knew what it was to work hard. They knew what it was to walk. Can your brothers and sisters say that about you when it's time for you? Oh, Doreen, she was faithful. She stood. She walked with God. She knew God. Ophelia, she walked with God. What a faithful witness she was. My life is is nothing compared to the faith and the grace that she walked in. Oh, Mary, oh, you you think that I'm a godly person. You, You should have met my mom. What a godly woman she was. Oh, the life that she lived and, and yet God preserved her and kept her. You want to know what faith is? You should have seen my dad. You should have seen. Can they say that, brother, sister? Will you be able to say that in the end? I pray to God that you'll be able to also say, and I, the days of my sojourning, he says, the days of my journey, I'm just passing through even here. I'm heading toward a different city. What land again are you longing for? What land are you looking to settle into? For Jacob, it wasn't there. Saints, anything that dims your hope, that dims your desire, for Christ must be turned away from. The the, the sorrows that we will endure in this world, they are often our helpful companions. They can sometimes be our best friends. Why? Because the troubles that you endure, the, the physical ailments, the, the, the dramas that you incur with your family, they remind you, this is not your home. Amen. You need trouble, lest you get comfortable. You need trouble, lest you start to settle in and say, it's kind of cozy here. I think I'll stay. Oh, what a comfortable companion and helpful companion sorrows are for the believer. This is not your home. They increase your longing, don't they? They increase your longing for glory. And when a loved one passes on, we want to cling to them and hold on to them. And the question is, well, where are you going? They are going where you want to go. Why cling on to them? Unless you're not going where they're going. No, your faith should increase. I will see you soon. The palace of Egypt, imagine. There are people who say, I made it to the White House. I stood in the Oval Office. Can you believe it? Wow. It doesn't last. 
The palace of Egypt was not Israel's final destination. It wasn't his greatest goal to have his picture there. See me there? It wasn't his goal. It was just one more hotel room on his way to glory. Don't turn these temporary hotel rooms that we experience in this life into your permanent homes. Just passing through. I pray this morning you've been helpfully reminded of all the things that you should already know. Be a faithful witness. When the world asks you who you are, tell them. Tell them. When the world asks what you are, tell them. When the world asks where are you going, what is your goal, tell them. My highest goal is God getting glory. I pray that you are reminded of things this morning that you already know. And that you would therefore live once again with the truth that you possess in your hearts. Let's pray.